0: Well, good morning again. My name is Robin and I am the associate pastor here. Uh, We're going through a series in Acts. Of course, we took a couple weeks off for Palm Sunday and for Easter. So we will be picking up in chapter 17 and we're gonna be reading from verses 16 through 34. So if you have your Bibles, I'm gonna ask you to turn there. Also, we're gonna have it projected up on the slide. So this is Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for loving us so much, for gathering us here, for calling us here to worship you. Um, as Jason said, we are reminded, God, that we need to be refreshed from the busyness and distractions of life. So as we come, we pray that you would remove everything that, is, that would compete for your attention. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us in fresh ways and in personal ways that the gospel would be powerful. God, that our eyes would be opened again to see you in your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Myanmar is a country located in Southeast Asia, and just as a refresher, I have a map of Southeast Asia on the the slide. This region is called Southeast Asia because it's located roughly south of China and east of India. And over the past several years, Myanmar has been in the news quite a bit because of the changes taking place there politically and economically. And much of the change has centered around this amazing woman in the next slide, Aung Suu Kyi. That name may sound familiar to some of you. She's one of the most prominent figures of Myanmar today. She was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize back in 1991 and was named Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2013. But something you probably don't know about Myanmar is that the oldest Buddhist temple in the world is located in Yangon, the former capital of Myanmar. And like many of its neighboring countries, Myanmar is a very Buddhist country, when you travel through Southeast Asia, one thing you're guaranteed to see are Buddhist temples everywhere. It's almost like when you go to Hawaii, you see ABC stores; um, they're everywhere. And but what sets Myanmar apart from its neighbors is that it's the home of the Shwedagon Pagoda. Now I have a few slides here, and as I mentioned, the Shwedagon Pagoda is the oldest Buddhist temple in the world, over 2,500 years old. Now I've had the opportunity to visit the Shwedagon Pagoda. Pagoda simply means temple. And when you enter the Shridagon pagoda, it's as if you've entered into a complex or a small sea of hundreds, if not thousands, of statues and idols that represent different events in the life of Buddha or aspects and qualities of the Buddha that you're aspiring for. And as I was walking around trying to take all of this in, I was struck by two things. First, the sheer volume, the sheer number of golden statues everywhere. I have a finance background, so I was trying to do the math and think, oh my gosh, how much money did it take to to build out this temple and all of the idols and all the statues? Second, I was struck by the sheer number of devoted followers of Buddha who had come to give money, to pray, and ultimately to worship. These were sincere and earnest And faithful followers of Buddha who are banking their entire lives and their entire eternity on the teachings and promises of Buddha. And in that moment, as I observed everything around me, I had to ask myself a very important and standing where I was, a very difficult question Do I believe in the gospel? Do I believe that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life? Do I believe that apart from confessing your sins and trusting in Jesus for your righteousness, no one goes to the Father? As I was looking around, did I genuinely believe that every single person who was there at the Shwedagon Pagoda, trusting in Buddha was going to hell? A place of unthinkable suffering and torment and punishment because of their sins for all of eternity? With absolutely no hope of escaping? That is a difficult question to think about, and I know, I have no doubt, I just offended several of you for even asking it. I think about what I felt there in Miramar, and I think about what Paul must have felt in today's passage as he is walking through Athens. We're told that his spirit was provoked as he saw that the city was full of idols. This morning, I'm going to focus on two things. First, I want us to reflect on Paul's heart. And second, Paul's message as he engages with very sophisticated and cultured people. First, the heart of Paul. I'm going to spend the bulk of our time on this. I think we see two aspects of Paul's heart. First is Paul's heart towards the lost. Paul is willing to risk everything and even lose everything if it means that he can bring the life-saving message of Jesus to those who are perishing. Now, it's helpful to know how Paul got to Athens in the first place. You see, today, um, when missionaries prepare to go to the field, there's a fairly thorough process. Missionaries have done their research. um, They've identified the specific people group that they feel that God is calling them towards. Um, and then they visit churches and they itinerate. They're, um, sharing their, they're sharing their story. They're sharing about how God has compelled them to go. And they're sharing um, a little bit about the people group that they're going to. And they're inviting people to come along with them and to join them in bringing the gospel to that people group. And it's an encouraging process and it's a necessary process. It ensures that missionaries aren't going out to the field alone. They need people back at home that will commit to caring for them. And praying for them and giving to them because mission's work is so hard. It's so lonely and the spiritual battle is no joke. I have the privilege of getting on a Skype call with missionaries in Southeast Asia almost every two weeks. And I'm reminded of that every single time. But the process that missionaries go through isn't just for themselves, it's also for us. When missionaries visit churches and share about a people group, it catalyzes the church to remember that there are real people in the hundreds of millions that are dying. But we have the opportunity even here in the U.S. to do something about it. So there's a process that modern day missionaries go through before they land on the field among a specific people group that they've been praying for. But that's not how Paul gets to Athens. We don't even know if Athens was even on the radar for Paul. Because before Paul arrived in Athens, he was in Berea, and before he was in Berea, he was in Thessalonica, Thessalonica and, all of these, and all of this takes place in the first 15 verses of chapter 17. And the reason why Paul keeps moving from city to city to city in just one chapter is because as he preaches the gospel, he's getting people upset, people are offended by it, and they want to kill him. So Paul is literally running for his life. And Athens is where he happens to escape towards, escape to. In this passage now you see when you study the history of global missions and the power of the gospel that reaches cities and nations that are so different that are so unlikely to respond to the message of Jesus the power of the gospel is always always paired with the suffering of the one who delivers the gospel and if there's one thing we know about the Apostle Paul he was willing to endure all sorts of suffering for the sake of sharing the gospel But it's not just Paul. There are missionaries today who are making costly sacrifices and enduring tremendous suffering. Usually it's physical and it's spiritual and emotional and relational. And when I get on Skype with these missionaries in Southeast Asia, oftentimes by the end of the call in tears, they'll share with me how hard it is. They'll share with me how lonely they feel and how they feel forgotten. And they just feel like they're going to fall apart. But they're not alone. Even the Apostle Paul, as incredible of a missionary as he was, we get a small glimpse into his desperation when we read in verse 15. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. We're told that Paul gives the messengers a command. This is not a friendly request. This is not an FYI. This is a command. He says, be sure to tell Silas and Timothy to join me as soon as possible because he can't imagine being there alone. Because the suffering is real. The persecution is real. The isolation is real. Now, for many of us in this room, and me included... It's hard for us to emotionally connect with the physical suffering and the persecution and the threat to life that Paul experienced, which caused him to live like a, like, a, like a fugitive on the run. It's not something most of us have had to worry about living in America. But what Paul experiences here in Athens is different. It's something almost every one of us should identify with. In Thessalonica and Berea, Paul's life was threatened. But in Athens, something else about Paul is threatened. It's Paul's pride, the things he used to place his trust. And here's what I mean. Now, during the golden age of Greece, Athens was the most important city in the world. Now, when Paul arrives there, Athens is no longer in the height of its glory, but it's still one of the most sophisticated cities in the known world. Athens was the birthplace of democracy. Great political thinkers and leaders have come out of Athens. Athens was a leading city when it came to philosophy, as Socrates and Plato were from there. The sculpture and literature of Athens that started in the 4th century B.C. remains unsurpassed. And and Athens has been described as a great university city, the way we might describe Boston with MIT and Harvard. Athens was an impressive city. It's a kind of city that pre-conversion Paul saw would have felt right at home. Maybe even a place where he might go to see how he compares, how he measures up. Pre-conversion, Paul was from the city of Tarsus, and what we know about Tarsus is that it was one of the largest trading centers on the Mediterranean coast, but more importantly, it was renowned for its universities, like Athens. During the time of Alexander the Great, Tarsus was the most influential city in Asia Minor. While Paul was still young, we're told that he went to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel, one of the most noted rabbis in history. The Hillel school, which he attended, was known for giving its students brought exposure to classical literature and philosophy and ethics. And from a Jewish societal standpoint, he was from the stock of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin, we're told, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was a highly esteemed Pharisee. The pre-conversion Paul would have been proud of all of this. His very identity would have been built on all of this. But as Paul begins to preach Jesus and the resurrection, the Epicurean and still, with philosopher, philosophers think he's a joke. He's a simple-minded fool that's not to be taken seriously. And that's what they mean when they call Paul a babbler in verse 18. In Paul's day, the word babbler had reference to a bird or a chicken that would be pecking away at the ground for seed and just mindlessly grab something, peck, 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 and just spit it out. Like he was just some ignorant chicken, just had some idea and just decided to spit it out. It would have been absolutely insulting for anybody to be called the babbler. You pecking chicken, you. Especially insulting for someone like Paul, given his background, his education, his capabilities. It would be like comparing director Steven Spielberg to some teenager who uploads videos of himself and gets 30 hits. Or comparing Warren Buffett to some rookie day trader who thinks he's going to make millions. Given who Paul was pre-conversion, this would have been a major attack on his pride. Now, I'll never forget a conversation I had with my coworkers about 15 years ago. It was so vivid. It was 15 years ago that I remember where I was seated, where I was sitting. I remember um, the look I had. And Anyways, this was a, there were six people in our group. And because we spent so much time together, we talked about a lot of things, but religion wasn't one of them. And I had been praying because I, I really believed that as I was working, that was my mission field and work my best and be above reproach, have integrity, be faithful, um, let my life be a witness. So I really was praying for them. I was praying for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And an opportunity almost came up. Here's what I mean by almost came up. Now, I can't remember who broached the subject, but we got onto the topic of religion and we started to share, sort of went around, we talked about what we believed. And I found out that one Caucasian woman was a Buddhist, which is like, oh, all right, cool, all right. You don't, it's not every day you see a, a Caucasian Buddhist. Um, but I remember people were very affirming. They were like, oh, that's great. You know, I hear Buddhist meditation is so helpful. And one guy on group was an atheist, and people respected that. Um, he said he grew up Catholic, but he had seen so many things that were wrong with the church that he decided to walk away, and people understood that. And when it came to my turn, I said that I was a Christian. And I vividly remember one of the ladies asking me, so you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And I didn't say it right. I didn't say it the way she said it because the way she said it, I wanted to slap her. <laughs> I mean, I f- I mean, the way she asked that question, I felt like my reputation and my intellectual integrity were on the line. It was like she was asking me, I mean, are you a serious thinker or are you like a chicken pecking away, right? And I felt all sorts of emotions. I was annoyed by the fact that she asked this question the way she asked it. And I was concerned about the way that my group might think about me. Maybe they'll talk behind my back and think I'm, I'm a moron. But anyways, I had to respond to the question. I said, yes, I do. I do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And she did one of these numbers. She did. She went, okay. And I, I said, like, oh, no, you didn't. And and, she, and, I, and when she did that, again, I was like so upset. And I lost all desire to share the gospel with her. And well, time ran out, we need to get back to our desk, back, go back to our office, so we left. But I was so irritated. And at that moment, what was happening was my pride was being severely attacked. And because of that, I had no desire to share the gospel with her. Now, looking back, I wish I had a different emotional response. I wish I could have been a little bit more compassionate, a little empathy, uh, maybe a little bit more gracious, because the fact is, apart from the Holy Spirit, it's not reasonable to believe that dead people rise from the dead. And maybe you're in a situation today with friends or coworkers or a group of moms where you're the only Christian, and you're convicted at some point you need to share your faith with them, because you see that friend, you see that person seeking to be whole and seeking to be satisfied in his work or this new relationship or her kids. All good things, of course, but things that can never satisfy. You need to take a risk and invite that friend to church or share with them over coffee, how your faith in Jesus has changed you. But we run the risk of being mocked. But I'm praying that all of us at Kings would have the heart of Paul, a heart that cares less about our pride and about our reputation and more about the people that God places in front of you. So in this passage, we get a glimpse of Paul's heart. First, we see his heart towards the lost. He's willing to endure suffering and mockery for the sake of sharing the gospel. But second, we see his heart, we see his heart towards God and the glory of God. Now I think it's interesting that what that what annoys Paul is not the abuse and the mockery that he experiences personally. Instead, what annoys Paul is the abuse and the mockery that God experiences. Now, way before Paul ever opens his mouth and starts talking about Jesus and the resurrection, and way before he's called a babbler, when Paul lands in Athens and he sees, he looks out and he sees a myriad of idols in front of him, we're told that the spirit of Paul was provoked. He was irritated. Ah, what's up with that? There's an ancient saying in Athens. It's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. People say there are 30,000 idols, possibly, 30,000 idols there. When Paul looks out and he sees the pathetic attempt by creatures to create and capture the enormity and the power and the majesty and the creativity and the brilliance and the glory of God through statues made of gold and silver and stone, he's annoyed. The people of Athens have statues for every conceivable God, and just to make sure they cover all of the bases, they have an altar with the words inscribed to the unknown God, just in case. Now let's say you're good friends with a married couple who's been struggling for a long time with infertility. And you know that more than anything in, this, in the world, what this couple wants is a baby that they can laugh and giggle with um, to hold um, when she's afraid. And to pick up when she falls down. To experience moments of wonder when she sees snow falling for the first time. But after years of trying, they haven't been able to have kids of their own. So one day this couple invites you over for dinner. And as you enter the house, you're caught off guard and you're overwhelmed by what you see. There are American Girl dolls everywhere. I've got a slide with some American Girl dolls. They have the All-American Texas Girl doll. The Native American girl doll, the Chinese American girl doll, the African American girl doll, they have every conceivable doll scattered throughout their house, a doll for every color, every sport, every personality. And because they haven't been able to have a real baby of their own, they decided to purchase lots of American girl dolls, put them all over the house with the hopes that all of these dolls would somehow satisfy them. As you look around, you think to yourself, oh, my, no, 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 no. This is crazy. I mean, what they want is so good, and it's so real, and it's so precious. But, man, the way they've gone about it is crazy. It's perverse. It's distorted. It's all wrong. And I think that's how Paul must have felt. But even to a greater degree, when he sees these idols in Athens that are supposed to represent not a baby, but the eternal Huge creator God. And what the people in Athens want and what they're looking for is real and it's good, but the way they've gone about it is so wrong and it's so distorted. Paul is passionate for the glory of God, which is why it's so upsetting to him to see the glory of God and everything that God is and everything that God offers reduced to a bunch of statues. What an insulting and hollow portrayal of the deeply personal, life-giving caring God. So we first looked at Paul's heart. His heart for the loss enables him to, enable, to endure suffering and mockery, but we also see his heart for the glory of God. As Paul looks at him, he sees thousands of idols, he sees thousands of perversions and distortions of the one and only true God, and it provokes him, which is what prompts him to deliver this famous sermon at the Areopagus, commonly known as Mars Hill, Now, we'll spend the remaining moments of our time looking at this passage. Now, many pastors and evangelists and just good old lay folks uh, have studied this passage intently, um, dissecting the sermon that Paul delivers at Mars Hill because it's so unique. It's a prime example of a sermon given to an audience who has no background in the Old Testament. Now, in fact, if you were to set side-by-side one of Peter's sermons from the book of Acts, and there are several, if you take one of Peter's sermons and you put that side-by-side next to Paul's sermon here, the differences would jump out at you immediately. Because Paul references Old Testament passages repeatedly because the people he was dealing with were Jews or they were God-fearing Gentiles who knew the Old Testament. But for Paul, he can't do that. He's speaking to an audience who has no idea what the Old Testament is about. And chances are, most of the people that you and I will interact with today will have little to no familiarity with the Bible. And I want to make a few quick observations about Paul's message, because I think it'll be helpful for us. First, Paul finds points of agreement. In verse 22, Paul states what's obvious. He acknowledges that they're very religious people, as Paul himself is. And that's a good starting point. Being religious or seeking ultimate truth is not necessarily what everybody cares about. But in this case, Paul has it in common with them. And when we're about to have conversations with a non-believer about God and faith, it's helpful to establish common points of agreement, especially about issues that really, really matter to them. It could be about religion. It could be about their kids. It could be about work. It could be about marriage. Second, Paul gently exposes and he reveals he exposes the inadequacy of the idols and then he reveals a better God. He argues in verse 24 that the idols that they're worshiping are made of human hands and they could possibly, they're too small, they're too dead. They could, poss- they could never possibly contain the God who created everything and the God who gives life to everyone. Now, here's the thing. Not everybody, and in fact, most of the people in the audience there that Paul is speaking to probably didn't believe in a God who created everything and gave life to everyone. So why does Paul do that? Because as he identifies her idols and the things that they're hoping that these idols will provide them, he wants to show them how inadequate and dysfunctional and disappointing these idols really are. And he wants to point them to a God who's bigger and better than anything they've ever conceived. So Paul has to introduce to them for the first time the God of the Bible. This is outside of their purview. So here, Paul has to, with his presupposition, he brings a truth about the God of the Bible, and he confronts them with them for the first time. Now, when we speak with our non-believing friends, it's important that we also walk through these same steps. I'm in regular conversation with a dad from our community. And over the past couple of years, we've become good friends And recently he started sharing openly with me about his work situation and how upset he is about it. They haven't treated him fairly. And there's, I mean, it's like the only thing we talk about other than baseball. And I don't even like baseball. So, I mean, that's the only thing we have, he talks to me about. And so there's no question in my mind that his work is the biggest thing in his life. It absolutely defines him. Work either gives him tremendous joy or it creates misery. When work is going great, He's a great guy. The work isn't going well, stay away. I mean, he's just not a person you want to be around. Now, Scott Haefman, he's a professor at the University of St. Andrews, he says this Idolatry is the practice of seeking the source and provision of what we need, either physically or emotionally, in someone or something other than the one true God. It is the tragically pathetic attempt. To squeeze life out of the life out of lifeless forms that cannot help us meet our real needs. This dad friend of mine is trying to squeeze life's joy and meaning out of work and it can't. And where I am in my relationship with him is I'm praying for wisdom and I'm praying for boldness to know how to tell him about a God that is so much bigger and better than his work. That's where I am. I'm still in process with him. Third, Paul shares the gospel. Listen to how he presents it here in verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, Paul uses a lot of words here that that don't sound very friendly, um, it, in fact, it sounds very offensive. Um, he speaks about repentance, and that's not a fun word for most people today. He speaks about judgment. I mean, yikes. I mean, who likes to hear about that? He speaks about Jesus as the coming judge, and he speaks about the resurrection as the very thing that qualifies Jesus to be that judge. And how often do we hear a gospel presentation that includes every one of those elements in some capacity? Maybe not enough. But the fact is, the gospel presentation that doesn't address the need to repent for your sins, the need to trust in Jesus' life, death, and physical bodily resurrection as the only way to escape coming judgment is deficient, and it runs the risk of misleading people with a false gospel. It's important to keep this in mind when we have opportunities to share the gospel with our friends. And we have to resist the temptation to speak primarily or only about how Jesus forgives us and comforts us and gives us eternal life. Of course, all of these things are absolutely true. But if we don't speak about sin and judgment and the need to repent, the gospel isn't good news. The gospel is a good option. The person needs to know that because of his sins, he was headed towards eternal destruction, something so awful that it's almost incomprehensible but that shows us just how holy God is, that it would require that. But that same holy God gives us his own son to die and to suffer in our place. He experiences judgment for us. And then Jesus rose from the dead, guaranteeing that one day we will also rise again. And we will be together with him and everybody else that we love who've gone before us, who've placed our faith in Jesus for all of eternity. That's good news. That's hope. That's worth risking for. And the time we have here between now and eternity is an opportunity to do everything we possibly can with everybody God brings into our lives, with every gift that God has given us to share this message. That's it. That's our life mission. I mean, what an honor it would be for me, a glorious privilege if on my tombstone it said, Robin did everything he possibly could with everybody God brought into his life, with every gift that God has given him to share the gospel. That would be an honor to have that written on my tombstone. When I think about the life of Paul, it's hard not to mythologize him. I mean, he was like Superman, right? He was on fire for Jesus 24-7. And I think about today's passage when he arrives in Athens and he sees thousands of idols everywhere. And I, think, and I think what sustains Paul's heart for the lost is that as he looks out and he sees thousands of people worshiping and bowing before these idols, I think he sees himself. That was once him. He had hundreds of idols in his own heart that he worshiped. But Jesus has freed him and given him something so much better. Now imagine if, I shared about that couple who struggled with infertility. Imagine if that were you, and you struggled with infertility for years, and at some point you gave up. So you resorted to buying hundreds of American girl dolls and laid them throughout the house. They're in your kitchen, they're in your sofa, they're in the bathroom, they're everywhere. But one day you meet a doctor who's able to give you a treatment that's 100% proven to allow you or your wife to get pregnant and to deliver a healthy baby. So you take a risk, and amazingly, you go through the treatment, and you're able to have your own baby. But you're good friends with another couple who are also struggling with infertility. Over the years, you've shared in each other's journey all of the hardship and the disappointment and the pain. And like you, after years of trying, they gave up, and they went to the American Girl Store and bought hundreds of dolls, One day, the couple invites you over to dinner. It's a familiar scene. You enter through the door. You see hundreds of dolls everywhere. But this time, you walk in with your own baby in your arms. What do you do? Let me pray for us. Lord, I think uh, for me when I read this passage, and I think about where I was in Southeast Asia and, and seeing hundreds of idols, statues, temples everywhere, it's almost inconceivable to me to imagine um, what awaits. But I come here and it's easy to forget that there are just as many lost people just because I don't see golden statues of Buddha. Um, but there are idols everywhere. We just need the eyes to see. And so, God, I pray for all of us here, every person here. Jesus, whom you've died for. Jesus, whom you've redeemed. Jesus, whom you've plucked out of the pit of hell and you've placed in heaven. Every single one who identifies as a believer, Holy Spirit, would you convict us to care, to have the heart of Paul, to have the heart of Jesus? What caused you, Jesus, to leave heaven and to come here? Enduring everything, enduring the cross for our sake, would you stir in us a holy desire and a burden and an urgency to care about the friends and co-workers and neighbors and acquaintances that you bring into our lives? That we would care, that we would reach out, that we would take risk, that we would share the only hope, the only thing that we believe offers them true life true forgiveness. So God, give us boldness. Give us wisdom. Use us for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.